I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll be looking at verses 17 through 19 this morning. And so I'd like to read those verses to you. But before I do that, I remind you once again, brothers and sisters, that what we are about to hear read is the word of the living God. So let us tremble before it. Let us joyously receive it from the Lord as he has so graciously given it. And may we expect him to do great things in our lives through his word and by his spirit. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we confess our great need for you to teach us now from your word. For we recognize that we are completely and utterly incapable of rightly knowing you and making you known without the illuminating and sustaining work of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask now expectantly that you might glorify yourself in our midst this morning by revealing yourself to us in your word. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's a universal Christian experience, an experience that every Christian understands, that we will be tested by God. We will be tried by God at various times in our lives. And what that testing or trying typically looks like is the Lord will providentially bring a situation or a circumstance into our life And it will be readily apparent to us that in order to be obedient to the Lord, to obey His will in that circumstance will be very costly. There will be a great sacrifice involved in obeying the Lord and His commands during this time of testing. And for that reason, the temptation is great for us rather than to obey the Lord to turn away from obedience to him and his commands and instead go our own way and do what seems right in our own eyes. Why? Because we reason to ourselves, surely the Lord's will isn't that I sacrifice this much. We rationalize with ourselves. We reason with ourselves that surely this can't be the Lord's will. The cost is too great. And so we're tempted to turn away from obedience to him and do whatever is right in our own eyes. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is the exact experience of the original audience, the original Hebrew Christians who heard this sermon preached to them. The author of the book of Hebrews understands that their situation is that they're being persecuted. They're suffering for their faith at the hands of the Romans and unbelieving Jews. And it's been a prolonged suffering, and they've paid a great price, and it looks like the cost is going to continue to increase the more they continue to be faithful to the Lord. And so they're tempted to turn away from covenant faithfulness to Jesus and instead return to the old covenant types and shadows 
from which the Lord had delivered them. And why are they tempted to turn back? So that the suffering and the costs that they're paying might stop. And so it's the burden, the aim, or the goal of the author of this sermon to encourage these Hebrew Christians to persevere in the faith, no matter what the cost. And the way he's been doing that in Hebrews chapter 11 is he's showing us historical examples character after character, to whom the Lord was faithful and who themselves walked in covenant faithfulness before the Lord. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking specifically at the example of Abraham. And in these verses, 17 through 19, that we're going to look at this morning, what we see is the greatest test that Abraham has ever faced in his entire life. And I would argue is actually the greatest test that any human being has ever faced in the history of the world, save our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. The test of obeying God's command to offer up his son as a burnt offering. And the author of the book of Hebrews intentionally includes this to encourage these Hebrew Christians that as great as the cost is, as great as their sacrifice will be to be obedient to the Lord, they can entrust themselves to him because he is a faithful God. He was faithful to Abraham and he will be faithful to them as well. And so what we're going to see as we look at these few verses here, verses 17 through 19, is three headings. Three headings that I think will help us understand what the author is getting at here in these three verses. First of all, we're going to look at Abraham's test. We're going to see at how horrific and how difficult, how weighty this test would have been for him. Second of all, we're going to see Abraham's faith. How does Abraham respond to this test that God brings into his life? By God's grace, he responds in covenant faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. And then thirdly, we'll look at Abraham's reward. The fact that because of his covenant faithfulness to God, God graciously rewards Abraham in numerous ways. And brothers and sisters, the intent of the Holy Spirit is not just to encourage this original audience, but to encourage us as well to understand that whatever the cost of obedience as the Lord tests us, through whatever circumstances he brings into our lives, It is utter foolishness to do anything but to obey him because the Lord will provide for us. The Lord will be faithful to his covenant people. And that is meant to encourage us to be faithful to him as well. So let's look first then at Abraham's test. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This account in the life of Abraham is recorded for us in sacred scripture, and we don't have the time to look at it this morning, but I encourage you at some point either today or throughout the week to look at Genesis chapter 22 verses 1 through 14, because the narrative in full is recorded there for us. And the test that Abraham faces, that the Lord brings into his life, is the command that he is to offer his son, his only begotten, beloved son, as a burnt offering to the Lord, to consecrate his son, body and soul, to the Lord. 
And just so you know, the way that a burnt offering was offered was first, a lamb was taken and it had to be a male that was without blemish. Its throat was slit so that all of its blood would come out. And then its carcass, its dead carcass, was burned on an altar. This is what Abraham is being commanded by God to do to Isaac. Now, this would be an extremely difficult test for Abraham for several reasons. Some of those reasons are probably really obvious to you, and some of those reasons are perhaps a little less obvious to you. But one of the reasons why this would be difficult for Abraham is because you remember how long he and Sarah waited for this child, for this son to be born. You remember the Lord promises this to Abraham and Isaac, and they wait. We saw in the previous weeks for decades for the Lord to provide this child. And now finally, miraculously, the Lord opens Sarah's womb, which was well past the age of childbearing, and he allows Abraham, empowers him to procreate, and this miraculous child is birthed. And you can imagine Abraham thinking, man, does life get any better? I wonder what other blessings the Lord has in store for me. And yet then the Lord comes and says, I want you to sacrifice this child that I've finally given to you. And so we can imagine how difficult it would be because this was the promised child that they waited so long for. But second of all, this would also be difficult because it is unnatural. It is against nature. I know this isn't popular in our culture, but it's true. It is against nature to slay your offspring. We live in a culture where abortion is rampant, so maybe that sounds foreign to some of your ears, but I think we all know in our conscience, that it's wrong. And here's the thing. Abraham's not just commanded by God to allow this to happen to Isaac. That would have been devastating enough. No, the Lord makes it even more difficult in that it's by Abraham's own hand that he is to slay his son and burn his carcass. So it would be very difficult because this is against nature. And he would have to carry this out himself. But thirdly, and most importantly, this would be such a difficult test for Abraham because understand who Isaac is. He's the child of promise. It's through this child God promises that all of the promises that God gave Abraham would be realized through this family line. What is it that God promised Abraham? That he would be a great nation that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore, that he would be a great nation and that nation would be a blessing to the nations. And how would that ultimately happen? Through the offspring that would eventually be born down the line. The promised one from Genesis chapter 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So what you have to understand is that Abraham is being commanded by God, as far as he can tell, to cut off the source of all of those promises. To cut off the hope of salvation for the entire world. Because you see, the command of God to sacrifice Isaac seems to run in direct contradiction to God's promise that through Isaac, all of the nations would be blessed and the Messiah to come would be born. And so you need to feel the weight of this, that your very salvation, the coming of the Messiah, is hanging in the balance as Abraham is commanded by God to slay his son and offer him as a burnt offering. 
And as one more little reason why this would be so difficult, the narrative in Genesis 22 is abundantly clear to us that the trip that Abraham and his servants and Isaac had to take from where they were to Mount Moriah would take three days. Three agonizing days. I wonder how much Abraham slept at night. And one commentator that I read rightly said, Abraham likely died internally a thousand deaths, thinking of how he was to carry this out upon his son and seemingly, from his perspective, cut off all of the promises of God. Now, before we look at how this applies to us, I want to right out of the gate, very briefly, say very clearly one way in which this does not apply to us. And hopefully you already know where I'm going. Hear me loud and clear. The Lord will never, ever, ever command you to slay one of your own children. I hope this goes without saying, but it's worth saying. This is a once in the history of the world unique command and test that is given to Abraham. The Lord will never ask you to do the same. So, having said that, how does this apply to us? Well, as we look at Abraham's life in Hebrews 11, what we've seen again and again is at the beginning and the middle and the end of Abraham's life, the Lord tests him, doesn't he? The Lord tests his covenant people. He's tested first, Abraham is, by leaving his father and his known country to go to a land that he doesn't know. He's tested then in the middle of his walk with the Lord to trust that the Lord will provide an offspring when he and his wife are well past the age of childbearing. And now here towards the end of his life, the Lord has reserved the greatest test of all. To offer up the promised child as a sacrifice. What do we take away from this, brothers and sisters? We need to understand that no matter where we are in our Christian life, whether we're young in the faith, whether we're in the middle of our walk with the Lord, or at the end, the Lord will test us. He will test us because he loves us. Because he's being gracious and merciful and kind to us. It doesn't feel that way in the middle of life's tests. But that's the truth. He's treating you as sons. Hebrews 12 will go on to say. And so we need to understand then and answer the question, why does God test us? Why does the Lord bring these tests into our life? And there's many reasons that we could talk about, but the two that I want to talk about in particular are first of all the fact that the Lord tests us to show us that our faith is actually genuine. That the faith that we profess before others is actually true saving faith. This is the whole point that Peter gets to in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, tests, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does the Lord providentially bring tests into our life? To show us that our faith is genuine faith. And brothers and sisters, no matter what the Lord takes away from you, no matter how dear it is to you, no matter how precious it is to you, nothing is more precious than the gift of faith that the Lord has given you. Why? Not because your faith is precious in and of itself as an end in itself, but because it's by faith, the instrument of faith, that you receive Christ and all of his benefits. And so what's more important than to know that you are truly united to Christ? 
and have received all that he has accomplished for you. What's more important than that? So behold the love and grace and mercy of God that he shows you through tests and trials and temptations that your faith is actually genuine. But second of all, the Lord also brings these tests graciously into our lives to decrease our trust in ourselves and to increase our trust in him. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 19, Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. There's the test. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Even as a new creation in Christ, there are still pockets of the flesh in our hearts where we rely on ourselves. And so the Lord comes and tests us that from one degree to the next, we might come to the end of ourselves and fly to him. Stop casting ourselves upon our own resources and instead cast ourselves upon him. And so the Lord is gracious to show us where we're not trusting him through these trials, that we might repent of that lack of trust and then turn to him in faith so that our relationship with the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit deepens and deepens. And this is why the Lord brings these tests into our life. And because we know this, because we know that he's bringing these about for our good and for his glory, not so that he can discover something about us, he knows us perfectly, but so that we might know these things about ourselves and the world around us might know that we have true faith. Because we know that this is what the Lord is up to, we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. As James says we should in James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, not because we love the suffering in and of itself, but because we know what our sovereign God is up to in the midst of that suffering. To what ends he is using it. And so we can receive these tests and trials from the hand of our loving and good and gracious God. So we see then the weightiness the agony that Abraham must have gone through in this test that God brings his way. But then second of all, we see Abraham's faith in response to this test. We see that Abraham responds in obedience. Look at verse 17 with me, just the first half there. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So how does Abraham respond to this weighty, difficult test? He responds by faith in obedience and actually offering up Isaac. It's amazing to read in the original narrative in Genesis chapter 22 because there's no hesitation. There's no break. The Lord comes and reveals this to Abraham. And then immediately we're told the next morning he makes all the preparations and he heads out immediately to go to Mount Moriah so that he can offer Isaac as a sacrifice. There's no hesitation like there was in the previous tests that the Lord has brought into Abraham's life. Part of what we're seeing here is the Lord bringing Abraham to maturity in his faith. So his reaction is, I don't understand, but I'm going to obey. Now, here's a question that you might be asking yourself. The text clearly says that Abraham offered up Isaac. 
But if you know the end of the story, the angel of the Lord in obedience to the Lord's command comes and stops Abraham from offering Isaac and slitting his throat. He stops him. So in what sense then did Abraham offer up Isaac? Well, again, remember what we said earlier. The Lord knows the thoughts and intentions of all men. And so the Lord knows that the will The decision, the intention of Abraham was to obey the Lord no matter the cost. So the Lord knew that as far as Abraham was concerned, his intention, his face was set like a flint to sacrifice Isaac. And so as far as Abraham's intentions were concerned, Isaac was already as good as dead. All that was left was to actually carry out the act. And so this is the sense in which he offered up Isaac. Now, the other question that we have to ask is, how in the world was Abraham able to do this? Well, we're told that he was able to do this by faith. And we're given, though, even more information than just the fact that he did it by faith. He did it because he understood that God would raise Isaac from the dead, if necessary, in order to fulfill his promise. We get a little hint of that in the original narrative in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. You don't have to turn there, but let me read this to you. Abraham and his servants and Isaac have trekked for three days to Mount Moriah, and they're about to go up and worship the Lord. And here's what Abraham says to his young men, his servants. He says in Genesis 22, verse 5, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship, now listen to this, and come again to you. The boy and I, we're going to go worship, we're going to go offer the sacrifice, and then we're going to come back to you again. You see what he's saying? We're coming back, both of us. Abraham, knowing full well that he was going to carry this out as far as his will was concerned, he was convinced the Lord would raise him from the dead. Perhaps you say, well, that's not very convincing. Well, then look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. The author of the book of Hebrews says, He, that is Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, how did Abraham come to that conclusion? How did he come to that understanding that even if he did go through with slaying Isaac, the Lord would raise him from the dead? Well, the text actually tells us, although you miss it in English, The Greek scholars tell us that in verse 19 where it says he considered, Abraham considered, that word is actually maybe better translated calculated or accounted or reasoned. You see, God had revealed truths to Abraham that he received by faith. And then with his sanctified reason, he said, well, if God promised this would happen through Isaac, and yet I'm commanded also by God's word, that I'm to slay Isaac, then he calculates, well, what the Lord is going to do is he is going to raise my son from the dead. Why? Because what do I know about God? I know that God is truth itself. He's not just true. He is the truth. And so he cannot lie. There is no lie in him. He would cease being God if he lied. And so I know that he will be faithful to his word to me. And second of all, I know that God is all-powerful. He created everything out of nothing. He created everything out of nothing concerning Isaac's life. When my wife and I were as good as dead when it comes to childbearing, the Lord creates Isaac's life miraculously. 
in Sarah's womb. And so because I know these things about God, the logical conclusion to me is that God is going to raise him from the dead. Behold, brothers and sisters, Abraham's faith, because he knows who his faithful God is. Even though the command of God seems to contradict and cancel out the promise, Abraham's conclusion is God will raise him from the dead if necessary. Now, what do we take away from this? What are we to learn from Abraham's example here? Well, notice that Abraham's focus isn't ultimately on the result. His focus isn't ultimately on the outcome, which is what our temptation is as fallen human beings. The Lord says, I want you to obey me through this test, obey my commands, and we, rather than by faith receiving his promises and then trusting him, we're tempted to go, but man, what's going to happen to me if I actually do that? What's the cost going to be? What's the sacrifice going to be to myself and to my family, to my church? What kind of hit am I going to take here? And so because we start to worry about the outcome and the result, Because we focus on that rather than what on God has commanded, we start to think, well, maybe I should do this instead. Maybe the Lord doesn't really have my best in mind. The original temptation that Satan comes and brings to Adam and Eve in the garden. And so we start to question, what's going to happen to me? And brothers and sisters, this is what we learn from the example of Abraham. We're not to ultimately concern ourselves with the outcome or the results. That's the Lord's work. That's the Lord's concern, if you will. What is our concern? To receive the command that he's given us to be faithful, to walk in accord with his will, and to entrust the results and the outcome to him. I don't know how these commands get me to the end of God's promise, but God does. He knows better than me. He's all-powerful. He's faithful. He's truth itself. And so I'm not going to concern myself with the end result I'm going to concern myself with what God has given me to do. And then we rely on him by his grace to be able to obediently, by faith, obey him, however great the cost, through the test that he's brought into our lives. So we've seen the great test that was brought into Abraham's life. We see Abraham's faith. God empowers him to respond in faith and obey the Lord's command. And then thirdly, amazingly, we see Abraham's reward. God not only graciously brings the test and graciously empowers him to respond in faith, he then also graciously rewards him. So look at verse 19 with me to see this. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We know this from the narrative in Genesis in chapter 22, and we know it from here, that the Lord, the first reward that Abraham receives is that the Lord spares Isaac's life. You remember, Abraham's about to plunge the knife into his son's throat, and the Lord stops him and says, Behold, Abraham, essentially, your faith is genuine. You love me more than you love the gift that Isaac is to you. Do you see? That's how I've matured you, Abraham. I've brought you to this point that you love me more than your only begotten beloved son, and so you're willing to sacrifice him. Behold, your faith is genuine. And so the reward that he receives, though, is that he receives Isaac, as it were, back from the dead because as far as Abraham was concerned, mentally, he had already sacrificed Isaac. He had but then to carry out the act. 
And so the Lord graciously spares Isaac. A ram is provided. You remember from Genesis 22? Its horns are caught in the thicket. And so that ram, that male lamb is sacrificed instead of Isaac. Second of all, though, Abraham now has a deeper understanding of who his God is. This is always the way it works, by the way, when we're tested by God. When we choose to cast ourselves body and soul upon him, instead of relying on our own resources, we see how the Lord carries us through, and we are drawn into a closer relationship with him as a result. Because we've seen that he's faithful to us yet again. Now, how do we see this in Abraham's testing in particular? Well, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what the author of Genesis 22 says in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. This is a new name that the Lord is revealing to Abraham. And what the name translates to, the Hebrew scholars tell us, is the Lord will provide or the Lord will see to it. The Lord will see to the outcome. The Lord will see to the end result. I had but to be faithful in what he commanded me to do. Verse 14 ends this way. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall provide it. Abraham knew intellectually previously that God, his covenant faithful God, is a God who provides. But now he had tasted and seen that the Lord is good in his provision in this way. But thirdly, and most importantly, the reward, the greatest reward I believe that Abraham receives here is that I believe that through this circumstance, through this test, and through the Lord's provision, he actually sees, Abraham sees Jesus' day. He is shown in type and shadow here more about the person and work of the Messiah who is to come. Isaac here is a type of Christ. The text specifically tells us that. Look at verse 19 again. We're told he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, figuratively, the Greek scholars tell us that that word can be translated type, or as it is here, figure. Isaac is a type of Christ. He's a type of the Messiah who was to come. How? Well, brothers and sisters, you need to understand God's not asking Abraham to do anything here that God himself isn't eventually going to do. God the Father is going to send his Son to be the once-for-all atonement for sin by becoming the Lamb of God for us. Do you remember this touching scene in Genesis 22 when Abraham and Isaac are heading up the mountain? And what's this question that just makes you want to weep as you read it, if you have half a heart at all? Isaac says, Father... I've got the wood and I've got the torch, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? Abraham responds, the Lord himself will provide the ram. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, you need to understand, all throughout the Old Testament, that's the question that's being asked again and again. Where's the lamb? Every day in the temple when a lamb was slain and burnt as an offering to the Lord as an atonement for sin, the question was asked again and again, where's the lamb? We know that this is ultimately just a picture of the Messiah who's to come. Where is he? And then the Son comes and takes on flesh. And when he steps onto the stage of human history to fulfill the earthly ministry that the Father has given him, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Father has given his Son to lay down his life 
that Isaac might be spared, that you and I might be spared. We deserve a death worse than Isaac's. We deserve to suffer in hell for all eternity for our sin and rebellion against God, and yet we're spared even as Isaac was because Jesus takes that wrath upon himself on the cross, paying that penalty in full. He is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord has provided on the mount of the Lord. It will be provided, and it was, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, what's also helpful for us to understand is that Abraham is a type of Christ as well, which is our only hope. Because the reality is, yes, Abraham's an incredible example here of God's faithful working in his covenant people, but we remember the tests that Abraham failed in the past. Abraham didn't respond every time in covenant faithfulness like this. He failed oftentimes, more often than not, it seems, in the Genesis record. And so Jesus comes as one who's greater than Abraham. He comes as the second Adam. He doesn't give in to the temptations of the flesh and the world and the devil. Not that he had temptations of the flesh, but the world and the devil, I should say. When he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he doesn't give in to them. Not once. He succeeds where Adam failed. Where Abraham succeeds, he's meant to point you to the one who's coming who will perfectly resist the temptation of Satan and he'll fulfill all righteousness for us. And that's good news. Why? Because when we fail, we can know that before God, we have Jesus' track record of perfect obedience through the tests. Now, when we fail, we should repent of it as sin because it is sin when we don't trust the Lord. But why do we not just give up then and say, well, there's no hope? No, we understand that Christ has done what we failed to. We have his track record, and he paid for that sin, the penalty that it requires on the cross, so that we don't have to pay that penalty. And so in this way, Abraham is a type of Christ pointing us to how Christ will fulfill all righteousness for us and in our place. And so here's the point. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord has provided for our greatest need, our reconciliation to the Father through his Son, the giving of his son. His son wasn't spared like Isaac was. His son paid that penalty. The father poured out his wrath upon Jesus. If he did that so that we could be reconciled to him, we can trust him for the other needs that we have. That's Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is our mantra to be all the days of our lives, brothers and sisters? It is to be the Lord has provided, the Lord continues to provide, and the Lord will provide. And so whatever the test, we can respond in faith, whatever the cost. Why? Because our God will provide. And because we know that, we can say along with John Newton, who penned in his poem, the Lord will provide these words. Though troubles assail and dangers affright, though friends should all fail and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, the scripture assures us, the Lord will provide. His call we obey, like Abram of old, not knowing our way, but faith 
makes us bold. For though we are strangers, we have a good guide and trust in all dangers the Lord will provide. When life sinks apace and death is in view, this word of his grace shall comfort us through. No fearing nor doubting with Christ on our side, we hope we die shouting, the Lord will provide. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're brought very low before you in your word. Your grace and mercy overwhelm us. We're well aware of what we deserve in and of ourselves. Against you, you only, have we sinned. And yet, though our sins are as scarlet, you wash us as white as snow in your Son. Thank you for providing him for us and for giving us the gift of faith so that we're united to him. Pray that you would empower us with a deeper understanding of you, your power, your provision, your care, your faithfulness, so that whatever the test, whatever the cost, we might walk in faithfulness as Abraham did, as Christ did perfectly, looking forward to our great reward. May we consider these sufferings as light and momentary in comparison to the weightiness of the glory that awaits us. And with that, may we boldly charge forth and make your gospel known to those around us here and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Do this through us, we pray, to the praise of your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.